I would just like for us to sing a little song. So if you'll just sing along with me, you probably know it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Lord God, we thank you that that song is not just a, a, a nostalgic reminder maybe of what we grew up with, but that it's true. And it's true whether we're, we're six or 60. And I thank you that I thank you for parents and grandparents and teachers who taught us songs to remember that teach us truths about who you are and what you're like so that when we forget and we drift, you can bring them to mind because they're firmly implanted there. Speak to us today through your word as we look at um, intense scenes of future history. Help us to take away the things you want us to take away. Help us to think about what, is you, what are you saying to me today, God? And then help us have the courage to follow that question with what do you want me to do about it? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Revelation 17. Congratulations, you've gotten through the first two sections. There's one more section, and I'll give you that in just a second. But before that, I want to tell you a story, okay? This kind of sets up my title. So it was 11th grade. I was in English class, Miss McGregor's class. She was a tough teacher, okay? She expected you to actually read the books she assigned. I, I had trouble with that, I admit. And we had just finished, well, the class, well, some of us had just finished reading The Tale of Two Cities. And so the reward in The Tale of Two Cities, besides you could pass the quizzes, which was debatable, because even if you did read it, you probably didn't pass all those quizzes, uh, was that we'd get to watch the, the movie, or at least the end. I honestly only remember watching the end, and that's the reason for the story. So at the end of the story, of the Tale of Two Cities, I think it was in France, because again, I didn't read the book, and Charles Dickens, I do know he wrote it, I'm pretty sure that's right. I don't know who the main character was, and honestly, I don't know who was standing before the guillotine or if you're from the South, guillotine. But anyway, the guillotine is an instrument of death that drops a blade over the person whose head stuck through as a way of execution. So it's the end of the movie, the camera's shining on the blade, and then to somebody who's tied up, and I don't care, I don't really know, because I don't know the story, and I don't want to spoil it, right? Spoiler. Okay, well, I guess this is a spoiler alert, because we'll drop, and I know this, and I see this coming, and everybody's really watching this, this and they're all getting really intense, and I'm going, I've got an idea. And so there's this really cute girl that sat right in front of me, okay? And I knew her, okay? It wasn't like she didn't know me. I didn't know her. I knew her really well. And I really wanted to make her jump at just the right moment, you know, like when the blade fell. So I thought this was a brilliant idea. See if you agree. And so when the blade dropped, I thought I would do that on the back of her neck with my hand. Not really hard, but just enough to get her to jump and maybe hopefully scream because that would be so funny, I thought, at the time. So clearly I hadn't thought this through very well. Nevertheless, the scene came up, the moment came, the blade dropped, and I did it. And she jumped, but she didn't scream, so I was kind of disappointed. But 
that's the reason why it took me so long to get Anita to say yes to marrying me. It took over four years, but um, so it, I don't recommend it as a way to flirt, but anyway, she can't say she didn't see it coming. All right, so the reason I tell that silly story is because we were watching The Tale of Two Cities, and this passage is about two cities. That's it. There's no real redeeming value there except avoid the guillotine at all costs. The Tale of Two Cities in this passage was, is the title, Which City Are You Living For is my title. Now, the title I didn't print to put on the internet because is which woman are you pursuing? Because that's really, really what it's about. There's two cities, there's two women, there's two rulers. And the question is the same no matter which one you're looking at. Who are you pursuing? And we're all pursuing one. You might be passively pursuing one or the other, or you might be actively pursuing one or the other, but there's no middle ground. It's like you're either on this side or you're on this side. And, and what the, the book of Revelation does a really good job of is making it very clear what happens to you depending on which side you're on. Okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through chapter 17 here with you and I'm going to explain to the best of my ability what some of these symbols mean. There, there's some crazy symbols in here, some crazy things here. I know I say that every week. It feels like it's getting you know, more and more intense. So let me give you the overall context, especially if it's your first time. So 22 chapters, Revelation, sometimes it's called the apocalypse. Both of those things mean the unveiling. The unveiling of truth that is future, future history, things that are to come. So these are presented to, as a vision given to someone to tell the church, the body of Christ, the family of God, here's what's coming. Wake up. Are you ready? Because it's coming. And um, I didn't tell Gene to say this, but when he talked about consumer, the, this, this disease of consumerism that's in our culture, I would take it a step further and say it's, a, it's not just a disease, it's a religion that's, um, that's sweeping our country for sure, and it's in this passage as one of the ways, and, and it's got a name, and I'll give you that when we get to it. So, um, so the context is first three chapters, chapters, we have Jesus in the churches. We don't hear about the church after chapter four, after really after chapter three, which is why many think that at the beginning of this seven-year tribulation period, that could be literal, could be figurative. I really don't care, except I'd like to know which it is, and I don't. And those who think that the church will be raptured at the beginning are pre-tribulationists, or pre-tribbers, we called them in seminary. If you think it happens halfway through, you're a mid-tribber, and if you think it happens at the end, you're a post-tribber, okay? The, the idea here is that at some point, Jesus is taking his people home. Now, I'm kind of I'm kind of liking the camp that says, right before all that start happening, we get to go home. I'm just, just, I just soon miss all that. But, because we don't know for sure, we have to prepare as if we're going through half or all of it, okay? Or... And this is really hard to, you know, how would I, why would I prepare for something I don't believe in? If you don't know the Lord and don't have a relationship with God yet, but you're hearing about this now, this is good because you're going to know what to do when everybody does get raptured and you're left behind, right? That's the whole left behind series that, that's written and, and movies and all of that. Is that there's a few people who've grown up in the church but never, never said I do to Christ. They never got it. It never clicked for them that, oh, I have, it's a relationship, it's not a religion. 
I mean, technically it's a religion, but ultimately, and what really matters, it's a relationship. It's about a relationship with your creator who we rebelled against and he made a way for us to be reconciled to. So first three chapters, Jesus and the church, chapters four through 16, which we finished 16 last week, are the, is the throne of God and the judgments of God. Okay, and a lot of that time was spent going through the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, which is all figurative language and, and, and symbolic language for God's judgment and wrath on mainly the prince of darkness and his legions, but also those who worship him and them and follow them. And while it's real, it's, we kind of go back and we go, well, I've never really seen any of that. It just feels so make-believe, so mythological and, and all that. And I would say it's real and it's going to become more real the closer we get to that, that day, okay, when, when Jesus returns or even the beginning of that period of time, that tribulation time, okay? Um, we are all, we, if you just look at history or if you just look at today's news, you will see examples of what's coming in smaller doses, it, so the doses are getting more intense and they're coming together and happening more frequently. It's like God's saying, wake up, it's coming, pay attention. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24 and 25 and other places. God is going to send his son to come again. The first coming, Jesus came as a baby. The second, he comes on a horse as a conquering king. So in this chapter, 17, 18, and 19, while the judgments are done in 16, he, it's like he takes a little more time to unpack what happened in 16, some details that we didn't get. Like how is, how is God going to judge the dragon, who is Satan, the beast, who is the Antichrist, the false prophet, who is the false prophet? You with me? Okay, how's he going to deal with them? Oh, and then there's this woman, this prostitute, this whore, this slut that represents, this is a symbol, use such graphic language, Darren, because that's what he's using to get our attention because it describes the water we're swimming in and it's a sewer. The water that is our cultural identity, our culture of beliefs, the religions that, that permeate everything we do. No matter where you live in the world, um, it's gonna vary from place to place, but it's there. Sometimes it's as, it's as clear and formal as, um, as uh, Hinduism or a, a Buddhist temple or an Islamic mosque. And sometimes it's as, 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 as um, un, uh, informal as consumerism, materialism, um, workaholism, etc. Okay? So let's go through this. And, and as we do this, I, wanna, I want you to remember, I'm learning alongside of you, Okay? I jokingly, half-jokingly say I'm about 10 minutes ahead of you, and I just need to stay ahead of you, okay, since I'm learning here, so I don't have it all together. What that means is I'm learning, and there are some things that I'm learning that are changing kind of my perspective on some of this. A slight, I would call it, um, tweak in, in what I'm seeing is I tend to default, and I think this is a good interpretive principle, to read things as literally as I can unless the literature calls for something less literate. Okay, so if it's poetic language, I'm going to read it poetically. If it's um, allegorical, I'm going to read it allegorically. But if, if I can read it literally and that makes sense to the people it was written to and to us, then that's where I'm going. And in Revelation, I've tended to try to do that. What I'm learning is it's mostly written to be and intended to be read symbolically. 
So let me go back to the illustration I've used a few times, and I think you'll see the nuance that I've picked up. Um, so if jar on the shelf, it's got the label on it with a skull and crossbones, or however you do poison. I think it's, it might just be a skull. I can't remember. And when I show you that symbol, you go, ah, poison. There's something deadly in the jar, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? Now, John isn't describing, let's say John is trying to describe, tell us about the poison, poison when he writes it. He's describing the sticker on the jar. He's describing the symbol. So when we read it, we don't go, God's going to kill us with stickers with skulls on them. That's not what God's going to do, right? He's going to kill us with poison. I'm just saying that as an example. God's not going to kill you with poison, I don't think. All right? But, but you see what the difference? You see the nuance? So when we read it, we're seeing, we're seeing the symbol that means something. And, and we're like, well, why doesn't he just come out with it? Well, because somebody in the first century that read this would see something different than I would see it 2,000 years later as we read it now. If it's something that's literally being described, it might be hard for us to understand if we've never seen it before. But if it's a symbol that has already been described and used in previous texts in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, places like Daniel, then I can actually go back, and, and I realize I have a glossary and it's the Old Testament scriptures. I can take the Jewish scriptures, and, and they're telling me that this is coming from way back, and then John updates it as God downloads the revelation to him, and he writes it down. So symbols are actually supposed to help us interpret what's coming in a way that's timeless instead of riveted to a certain culture or a certain era of time. Okay? So I, I don't even, yeah, I think I finished that, right? So first three chapters, Jesus and the churches, four through 16, the throne and judgments of God, 17 through 22, the whore, the king, and the bride, okay? And if you're cringing, good, okay? Because we need to. All right, let's jump in. Starting in verse one, remember who me is. He's, he's saying, this is John that's writing. One of the seven angels, who was in the chapter before, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, to me being John, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. And later he'll tell you what the many waters symbolize and what the great prostitute symbolizes. The, the point here is the great prostitute is going to be punished. And John is going to be on, he's going to be watching this, whether he likes to or not, I suppose. Verse two, with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. I'm just going to read through six. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. This is what it said. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So the first six verses of this passage is John giving us information. He's revealing to us what he's seeing. And then the seven through the end, we're getting the interpretation 
of what he is seeing. And that's not typical in Revelation. Typically, it leaves the interpretation up to the reader. But they're going to, I guess we need some training wheels. So there's some help coming, which is good for me. Okay, so I want you to see several things. I think I, if the alliteration was C words, but it's like I want you to see where um, this woman is compromising and corruptive and cruel, and then the caption that's written on her head. I want you to see those in no particular order. First of all, the first couple of verses gives us a sense of her corruption. Okay, she she's going to get punished. It's going to be interesting who's doing the punishing. You'll see that in, in a little bit later. But um, so she is committing adultery with kings and inhabitants of the earth are intoxicated by her. Now, again, it's symbolism. It's, it, you might think, well, I think I can read that literally, right? Um, but w- what you'll see is that the woman is not an actual woman. You're going to see later that it's very clear that she represents, at the very least, world religions, if not just world culture, the, like I said, the, the water we swim in, so to speak. She represents that from all time. So in the days that this was written would have been the first century. And who was, in, who was the great power in the first century around the, John? John was imprisoned by, and he was put on the by the emperor Dom, Domitian, okay, of the Roman Empire. What was the religion of the Roman Empire besides the fact that they were polytheistic and believed in all these Roman gods that used to be Greek gods and they just changed their names, I think. But then there's this major cult that was all over the Roman Empire, and it was the emperor worship. And it started out that, that they would worship the dead emperors and go, oh, they're divine or sort of divine or demigods or something. And so they started building temples and cities and they would worship these dead emperors. And then the living emperor started to go, hey, I'm gonna cash in on this early. And so they started building their temples early before they died, so that, and they basically would say, I'm divine now. Treat me that way because that's what all people at the core of our evil hearts that's what we all want. We want to be in control like a to be worshipped like a God, and we want to be comfortable like we think gods are. We want to be able to have whatever we want. Those are the base idols. Those are the gods. That's Babylon in a nutshell. So the, the Roman Empire was that way. And just to give you a taste of what that religion does, and you're going to see this in verse 6 where he talks about the martyrs, is that um, it, it's cruel. Babylon is cruel, okay? Um, So, for example, in the first century, Christians were persecuted by the Roman Empire. A couple of ways they would do that. One is they would dress them in animal skins, animals that had been killed, and they would skin them and then wrap the skins around them like a coat and then put them out in the arena where the gladiators would sometimes fight, and then they would loose dogs that hadn't eaten for a week, like big, vicious, wild dogs, and they would attack until they crowd was bloodthirsty for the entertainment and the Christians were toast by the end of that. That was one way they would do it. Sometimes it was lions. Another way they would do it is um, they would, um, and I know Nero was famous for doing this, is they would um, put Christians on crosses after they dipped them in tar, put them on the cross, and then light them up at night because it would provide beautiful light to the city. It got so bad that even pagans were trying to defend Christians from the cruel punishments and persecutions that were coming. That spirit is Babylon. That spirit of religion. You go, well, gosh, I've, I've been to services and they're nothing like that. 
Well, you can go just find places in the world where in particular Christians are persecuted. If you go to India, you're going to find the Hindus are persecuting Christians just fine. In fact, they persecute Muslims too. If you go to uh, Muslim countries, you can find Christians don't have a good, good go of it there either. Okay? And so on. You go to China and the Buddhists. You can go all over the world and you can find it. If you look at history and you study martyrs, read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll find that even Christians persecute Christians, or at least so-called Christians, um, people uh, over silly things. It's this spirit that is this woman is representing, Babylon. And so John is writing this kind of in code. I don't know that John's doing that intentionally. He's downloading what God is telling him to write. Okay, so I don't know how much editing that John gets to do in that process, but God oversees it. So at the end of the day, from God, we're getting, he's writing what's happening in Rome, but he has to write it in code. Otherwise, this is treason. Okay, but the Christians realize, and so this is designed to encourage the first century Christians. Either that all of this is going to happen soon, or it's going to happen eventually, so persevere. And as bad as that was, the, the seven years, worse, global, okay? So are you preparing your kids for that? Because they might end up living through that. What are you doing to prepare your kids for that? It should be the better question. Let's keep looking at this. So um, the angel carried me away to a spirit in the wilderness. I'm in verse three. There was, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. So this nasty-looking beast represents the Antichrist. We've seen this in chapter 13. He was the beast of the sea. Okay, so the unholy trinity is the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Okay, and the dragon is Satan, and he just kind of sits in the background, and he works through these other two people that have been possessed, I suppose. I don't really know exactly how it works, but Satan is controlling or working through them. And remember, the point of the Antichrist, the beast, he's, he's like the one who establishes the one world order, the one world government. The false prophet establishes the one world religion. Okay? And what will happen at some point, and you, and we, you will see this when we read it, is that some, somehow this Antichrist will be killed. He'll get a fatal blow to the head. He'll die. And then he'll come back. All right? And when he comes back, he's not fully what he was it's almost like a statue that can speak and, and the false prophet steps in to the void and uses that to then manipulate world events through the religion so i always cringe when i hear people talking about you know world peace when i hear about oh let's just all get along the coexist sticker where it's like we're all the same let's just all get along well i mean i'm forgetting along to the extent that they're not all the same. They're all the same minus Christianity because it's 180 degrees different fundamentally and otherwise from these other religions, okay? But Babylon is not going to be friendly to Christians, not true Christians who, who trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And, and that's where some of this language, this colorful language is coming from. Now, why is she sitting on the beast? What's that about? She's sitting on the beast, and that represents some kind of alliance. And it feels like, to me, if she's on top, it feels like maybe she's a bit in control. And maybe that's because he, he is killed, and then he comes back, but he doesn't have the same power when he left. Okay, it's like the power shifts from one beast to the next. 
And, and I think that's probably because governments can control people so, only so far. Religion can control people much further, okay? Because it goes to conviction, all right? Um, let's, so our government is controlling us in ways we, we don't necessarily like, but we're going along with it as opposed to we're in a religious situation. People will want to do that. So maybe I, I'm speculating, so... All right, so the woman was sitting on the scarlet case. So he's going to explain the seven horns and the ten heads or ten crowns. All that is coming later. I may have that backwards. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, which sounds royal, right? And as I think of religions and I think of royal garments, I always go to the Vatican. I think of the, what the cardinals wear and what, I don't know who else. I don't know all their different titles, but they, the Pope. And they wear these what looks like old king suits to me. And I'm sure they are very expensive because everything they do is expensive, it seems like. And I'm doing this from a distance. I don't know. I've never been Catholic, so I can't relate. And I'm not saying that all Catholics are like this. I'm saying what I see from the outside as, as someone who doesn't really know much about uh, the Vatican or the Catholic Church, I see people who say they follow Jesus dress like kings, and he's a king, and he didn't dress like a king. Now, when he comes back, he'll come... So anyway, the contrast to me. And so she's dressed like this. So I'm thinking whatever religious system, there's going to be some of that. And that's because there's a power struggle and this is who's taking over. Okay. Now she's dressed in this and she's wearing, she's glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. More of the same. More of the same. She held a golden cup in her hand. She's not holding a scepter. Interesting. She's holding a cup. I don't know if this is to mock the Lord's Supper or not. I, I, I don't know, but it, it, it's filled with abominable things. And I kept, I kept saying, okay, so abominable sounds terrible. Of course, I think of the abominable snowman, and that doesn't, <laughs> that scared me to death as a kid. That was one scary monster, but I'd watch it year after year. But when I, what's the word mean? It means, um, it means uh, like just detestable, something that's detestable. And, and, and that didn't feel strong enough to me. And then I thought, what would be detestable to God? That's what we're talking about. So we tend to have a much lower bar than God does. And when he sees something as detestable or blasphemous, it, it's something that should, it would, it should physically cause us to want to be sick uh, because we can see what he's getting at. Now we have this caption that's written on the head. Now I don't know if this is, one commentator said that prostitutes were not, it was not uncommon for them to wear a headband. So I don't know if he's seeing a woman with the headband, which would associate with prostitute, and she's got these things written on her. But the point is, she represents a, a philosophy, a worldly um, way that these things are describing. She is called Babylon the Great. So now we're using the word Babylon. Okay, and we'll come back to that. Mother of prostitutes. She's not just a prostitute. She births them. She fruitful and multiply with more prostitutes, people who act like she does, and, and of the abomination of the earth. And then it follows in verse 6, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And that's Christian martyrs, okay? That's people who have died because they wouldn't de deny Christ even though their life was at stake at the moment. And I don't, I'm not going to read any of these to you, but I have a book here called Fox's Book of, of Martyrs. You can see it's a pretty, pretty hefty book. And it's full of stories, starting with the disciples, 
uh, of men and women who died for their faith because they were unwilling to compromise. And already, early on, that was a mark. That could have snuffed out a, and would have snuffed out a lot of religions. I mean, if you say, hey, let's go to church, but um, we might die on the way, that might, you might go, well, I'm just watching online today. Thank you very much. Because I don't want to die yet. So these people had to really believe. And they're not like people who are like, oh, this is a religion that's been around for a thousand years. It must be genuine, so I guess I'll take my chances. These are, this is at the beginning so what was it that moved them to say, I'm, I'm believing this stuff? They saw a dead man rise from the dead. They saw it. They didn't just hear about it. They saw it. They saw him. For 40 days, he appeared to people that knew who he was, that recognized him, and he ate with them, and he walked through walls. This is the new body. This is the one you've got to look forward to, the, the resurrected body. And we go, wow. And, and, and it's funny how we go, this is so hard to believe. And then we go, oh, what's, what's, what's the next Marvel movie? And like, that's easy to believe, right? We can believe that. And yet we have trouble sometimes. It's like, you know, God is God. Let's not forget who he is, okay? And if God is who he says he is and he's going to do all he's promised to do, not only can he do anything he wants and that's amazing, but they're good things. Unless you're, you're, you're living for the wrong city. Babylon. What's the other city? The New Jerusalem. Okay. What's the one? The prostitute versus the bride of Christ. Okay. If this were 100% believers in Christ, this would be a picture of part of the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is those who've trusted and followed Jesus Christ, and he's symbolically the groom, and we're the bride. And he loves the bride so much that he's willing to die for her, and he proved it already. What bride would not want that level of love from her groom? Right? And then, of course, you can use the other metaphors, too. He's our king, and he's dying for the subjects of his kingdom. The highest and the lowest, it doesn't matter. The oldest and the youngest, he died for them all. So this is what's permeating this. And as they're thinking this through, they're going first century, they're thinking Rome, we're in persecution. We, we live day-to-day -day persecution. We risk our lives to go to church. I dare wager that if it was risky for you to get here today at that level, I don't think we'd need as many chairs. Just saying. I just, right? It's just different in that, and when you're in that setting. And we've been We've been graciously shielded from that, but around the world, that's not always true. Last century died as martyrs than in the previous 19 centuries combined. That's including the first century, okay? So it's not getting better as we get further away, okay? We need to think about that and ask ourselves, which city am I living for? Because if I'm living for the new Jerusalem, then I know the best is yet to come and I'm not afraid to die. I may not be looking for it, and, no, and neither should you be. And I'm not, like, wanting to suffer. You shouldn't be looking for that. Because if you are faced with persecution, you're going to be afraid. The question is, will you have courage to step into that and stand firm even when you are afraid? My definition of courage is doing the right thing, motivated by love, 
courage. I think God gives us the courage we need in the moment based on how we've been and how the pattern of our life has been up to that point. Now, I spent a lot more time on the first six verses. The next verses come much, move much quicker because it's interpreting for me, so I'm not going to add a lot. But I, I, do, I will make some comments along the way. But this is really the question, right? What is God saying to you about this? Which woman are you pursuing? Which city are you living for? Verse 7. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? So at the end of verse 6, it says, when John saw her, that is the whore, Babylon the great, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, that's the rest of people, whose names have not been written in the book of life, people not following Jesus, from this creation of the world, will be astonished. The beast will impress them. He will blow them away with his power and his charisma. When they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. The beast, it, here it's obvious. He's horrendous, he's abominable, he's, he's awful. But to the world, he will not look like that. He will not have horns coming out of his head. He will not have multiple heads. He will look like the kind of world leader you could actually vote for. You will see him and you'll go, well, finally, somebody's in charge. And wow, I love that heart. Humble, servant, and, and did some miracles along the way. Wow, I'm not sure I believe the miracles, but this guy, he's great. And man, I love that outfit. You know, we're just going to be drawn to this guy because it says he's going to be that kind of a person. He's going to be that kind of a person that can not only draw the masses, but draw leaders, world leaders. This is the kind of guy that's going to be so powerful, the president of the United States is going to submit. Now, that may not be real hard to believe right now, but we've got you know, presidents in the past and in the future that may not be so accommodating. We're talking about somebody who is very likable. And they're going to come through in such a path that it's going to be like, well, certainly, there's no way this person's trying to do this. It will look so accidental. They'll almost fall into it. And everybody will be falling over themselves to elevate this person. Do not be deceived. Now, um, Babylon, one other thing about Babylon. So the word Babylon, the first time we see the root of that word is in Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel, okay? And in that story, if you recall, it's a pretty short story, but basically um, the people of the world have been told by God, be fruitful and multiply and scatter across the earth. And instead, they, be, they are fruitful and multiply and they all stay in one place. They're all speaking the same language. And now they decide, they get the great idea, let's build a tower to heaven and, and th th let's make a great name for ourselves, which is, you know, somebody's leading that charge. And it might have been the guy Nimrod, but um, who's in the Bible, the hunter with the bow and arrow fellow. Um, legend says he's a hunter of men's souls. They want to build, they don't want to get to God, they want to be God. And that's the heart, again, they want to be worshipped. That's the heart of Babylon. Okay? Well, God squashes that, he scrambles the languages, then they scatter because he kind of forced it. 
So Babylon, as far back as Babel, Genesis, that's pre-2000 B.C. Um, We see it in the exile, 500 B.C., when Israel is sent into exile. They're literally sent to the literal city, Babylon. Okay, and if you you can read Isaiah, you can read um, the, you can read um, Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stories. Those all happened in the exile. Jeremiah, before, during, and and maybe after the exile, Israel was uprooted as a nation and sent Judah in particular to live outside the city of Babylon as punishment for their spiritual adultery. Because they as a nation were spiritually acting as a whore. And that's God's words, not mine. Now you start to see the connection. God's people swimming in those waters too. It depends on the culture of your church. In Israel, it was the, the culture of the nation to say, yes, yes, Yahweh, he's awesome. Oh, and so are these other great false gods, and we're going to go worship them. And this is why ancient religions oftentimes had temple prostitutes so fitting and appropriate for a religion that's in essence a spiritual whore so you you, i think you're seeing okay so let's keep going um the inhabitants of the earth okay so verse eight nine this calls for a mind with wisdom to understand the seven heads symbolically are two things one is they're the seven hills on which the woman sits Okay, so if Babylon was code for Rome, we know um, geographically, historically, that Rome was built on seven hills. Okay, that's, there's not any real dispute over that. It's known for that. It, in literature, it was called the city on seven hills in different ways. So here we have the ba- Babylon sitting there, so we have that. And they are also the seven kings. Now he's going to describe these kings. Five have fallen, that means these are five kings that preceded first century, part of the first century. One is currently, that would be the current Roman Empire emperor at that point. Probably Domitian, maybe not. The other has not yet come, so it's a future king. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while, short reign. In verse 11, it says, the beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. So what do we learn about these kings? Basically, um, there's five in the past, most prominent, ten in the future. They're going to be, they're going to destroy the prostitute, and they're going to be destroyed by the lamb. It sounds kind of funny, destroyed by a lamb. When that lamb's name's Jesus, though. Verse 12. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but for who for one hour, that means very briefly, will receive authority as kings along with the beast. So the beast is going to rally some, some world leaders and they're going to all be under his thumb and they're going to be, oh, we're in this with you, we're, we're good because they're so taken by him, this Antichrist figure. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. That's the reason he's ringing. So he's probably the 10 most powerful leaders in the world or the number of 10 can also mean a number of completion. It could just mean all the world leaders are in. You know, maybe he's standing in the, in the United Nations and they're all just fawning over themselves because they, they want to follow this guy. And their purpose, the purpose is to get power and authority. Verse 14, they, that is these nation leaders, these kings, whether it's the 10 or all of them, 
they will wage war against the lamb. Okay? The lamb, that's Jesus. But the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Okay? Literally, he's going to show up and the war is over. This is why God dried up the Euphrates last week so those armies could come over. He's like, yeah, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And here they come. And I love this phrase. And with him, with the lamb, will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. So there will be believers there, whether they're, the church is still there because she hasn't been raptured yet, or these are people who've come to know Christ since the church has been raptured, and they, these are the ones that have actually still survived all through all of the judgments of God. Then the angel said to me, now remember when it said earlier in verse 2, Verse 1, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. I was like, well, what's that mean? Well, here's what it means. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw were the, where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations. So she's influencing the peoples, nations of the world. The beast in the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. Now, this is a turn I didn't see coming, right? But this is... This is God wired evil this way. In other words, God didn't create evil, but he created the good world that he created in such a way that when, if and when evil became real or animated or active, there was, it's almost like this, um, they call it a, a backdoor in software sometimes. Like There's no way you can defeat this software. Ah, but the creator created a backdoor. It's almost like God has this backdoor to take care of it. Um, the beast in the tent with the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. Okay, now they were, remember they were in an alliance. Well, apparently the party's over. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked and they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So the 10 kings and whoever is in power under the beast, they're gonna overcome the religion apparently. It's like, okay, we've used you, we're done with you, we're gonna destroy you. And evil destroys evil and that's how God judges evil. He uses evil to basically... And, and he's going to say that right here. Here's why. For God has put it into their hearts, that's the hearts of evil people and evil systems, to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God fulfilled. Because God's pronounced what he's pronounced in his providential will, it's going to happen. And the woman you saw is the great city, Babylon the Great, that rules over the kings of the earth. So the question at the end of the day is really this. What, what, what do you do with us, right? And I come back to the question I asked at the beginning. Which city are you living for? Which woman are you pursuing? Whether it's passive or active, we're all pursuing one of these. Okay? And if you want to get away from the, the symbolism and the weirdness of the book of Revelation, just ask yourself, who are you living for? You're either living for yourself or you're living for one greater than yourself. Okay? Are you living for yourself because it's all about me and I just want to be happy? Or are you living for your creator who made it possible for you to live with a motive besides selfishness? To live with a motive besides it's all about me? Because you don't have to look around at people very, very long to find that people are living for one of those two things. Okay? And most people, most people are living for themselves. And even in the church, most of us struggle. I would say probably all of us 
of us struggle with this, this tension, this temptation to live for ourselves because we swim in the sewer with the rest of the world. And this is why John says in 1 John 2, so 1 John's near the end of your Bible. If you want to turn there, I didn't tell the people in the back. Sorry, guys. Right before Revelation, you have Jude and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And in 1st John chapter 2, John, the same writer that wrote Revelation, says this. 15, 16, and 17. He says to believers, do not love the world. That means, doesn't mean don't love the people. It means don't love the systems of the world. Don't love Babylon. Do not love the world, Babylon, or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, notice, notice these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world, okay? From the world. And its desires will pass away. And we are just reading about that in Revelation. It's going to pass. It's not going to last. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Hold your finger there and go to Genesis 3, and we'll end here. Just to let you know that this is one story, and here's an example, because these verses span 1,700 years, okay? One story, cover to cover, right? Genesis 1, creation account. Genesis 2, another version of the creation Genesis 3, the serpent, Adam, Eve, bad stuff, okay? Well, look at this. The woman said, I'm in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, true, and you must not touch it, not accurate, or you will die. Verse 4, you will certainly not die, lied, I mean, sorry, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's true. Verse sort of. When the, verse 6. Watch for the three things we just read in 1 John. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for fruit, food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Shame filled them, so they, were so, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, I'm going to read it again. Six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Back to 1 John 2. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the three ways the enemy attacks us. And if we had time, we'd go to Matthew 4 and Luke 4, and you would see Jesus in the wilderness being tempted for 40 days by, the, by, the, by Satan himself, and his last nuclear bomb he's throwing at Jesus is to tempt Jesus in those three ways. And you know how Jesus foiled him? Every single time he replied with the word of God because he believed it, okay? So you have what you need to combat the enemy. You have what you need to combat Babylon, to not give in to the temptations. Who are you living for? What woman are you pursuing? What city are you living for? This is the question. This is the question that he leaves us with. Let's pray. Lord God, as we think about this, 
and we think about what is it you're saying to us today, I pray that we would just take a moment and ask ourselves the question, which city am I living for? And am I living for the city I really want to be living for? And if I am and it's, not, and it's Babylon, Lord, I pray that you would use this passage to prick the conscience, to get in their face, to convict them of the sin that they are living and to help them realize this is not in their best interest. And it leads to death, not just dead, but death forever, eternal torment. Lord, if they're living for the new Jerusalem, they're living for your kingdom, Lord, I pray that you would remind them that it is a battle we will fight until Jesus comes back. That fighting the temptation to not give in to Babylon. And Babylon is ruthless. She is alluring. She is desirable. She is attractive to all of us. And she knows just what bait to dangle in front of our eyes. If Eve, perfect and unblemished, gave in to the temptation, who do we think we are to think that we've got this? Because we don't. We need your mercy. We need your intervention. And we need the faith to, to, to rest in you and overcome Babylon and head towards the new Jerusalem. Help us to comprehend, help us to believe the truth and deny the lies. Help us to take up our cross and follow you. In Christ's name we pray.